0: Welcome to Our Lord's Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit olcc.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at olccokc. We are in part... 19 of our series on Revelation. And we should. We should be laughing and filled with joy. We've made it thus far. And we are going all the way through. We're going to look at chapter 17 today and then chapter 18 next week. And then we're going to have an interlude and have Ronnie and Constance Ladd preach on prayer. In a couple of weeks. That'll be good. And then we'll come back and finish the book of Revelation. And then after that, do you want to hear what we're doing? We're going to do a little brief series on the ministry of Jesus. So we're going to look in the gospels and see Jesus as our model for ministry. And we're going to look at the kingdom and prayer and deliverance and healing and multiplying as he did. So, all right, you can open your Bible, do Revelation 17 going to look at the whole chapter, but really I'm going to focus on the first half. There's so much here, and just like last week, we didn't have time to look at all the seven bowls. We looked at chapter 16 last week, the seven bowls, and we found that it was the judgment of Satan's kingdom, further illustrating the spiritual war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. We didn't get to talk about this, but I wanted to mention that this war culminates in the battle of Armageddon. Chapter 16 talks about this, and this symbolizes the final overthrow of all the forces of evil against the kingdom of God. So today we're going to look at chapter 17, and the title is The Prostitute Babylon and the Scarlet Beast. How's that for a title? Nice, lighthearted reflection, meditation on Revelation 17. And this continues to unfold the story that we're seeing in the book of Revelation. And it's a story of God unveiling his plan, the kingdom plan, to consummate the kingdom and human history in the person of Jesus. And so we've titled the whole series, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, because it's really about him. It's about his involvement, his work through his church. So it's not about the Antichrist. It's not about Satan and his kingdom. The book is a book that unveils the beauty, the power, the glory, the majesty, the fact that Jesus is Lord. But today we're going to look and we're going to unpack the meaning of this, this metaphor of the prostitute Babylon and the scarlet beast, the Antichrist system. We're going to see that there's a mystery in this chapter, and there's an angelic interpretation of that mystery. And then next week, we're going to look at the downfall of Babylon. It's going to be like a funeral dirge over the fall of Babylon. And I just want to say again, this is good news. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable, and it's unfortunate, but Oftentimes, the book of Revelation is neglected, as we've been talking about. So this is good news. It is the way the gospel story ends in the New Testament. So even today, as we look at Babylon the prostitute and what that's a metaphor symbolizing, and the beast, the Antichrist system, we remind ourselves Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. God wins. The Lamb has already conquered. We've seen that in chapter 12, that we overcome because Christ overcomes. So we overcome through his blood, through the word of our testimony, and by not loving our lives even to the point of death. But a chapter like this reminds us, it's important. In battle, we must know our enemy. Right? So this is a, a chapter that helps us analyze, look, see, and discern some things about our spiritual enemy. So we're going to read it, look at three parts. We're going to look at an introduction to a vision. We're going to look at the the vision itself. And then we're going to look at the explanation of the vision. So we're going to read the entire chapter. Then I'll go back and make some comments, especially on the first half of the chapter here. Revelation 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great whore, or prostitute, who is seated on many waters. I'll come back and make some comments on that. I know that's some pretty startling language, but it will make sense in its biblical context. With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and with the wine of whose fornication the inhabitants of the earth have become drunk. Verse three. So the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and 10 horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her fornication. And on her forehead was written a name, a mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of whores and of earth's abominations. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly amazed, perplexed. But the angel said to me, why are you so amazed? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and 10 horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to ascend from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will be amazed When they see the beast, because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Also, they are seven kings of whom five have fallen. One is living and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are united in yielding their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him, that's us, are called and chosen and faithful. And he said to me, the waters that you saw where the whore is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast, will hate the whore. They will make her desolate and naked. They will devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by agreeing to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. This is the word of God. And boy, is it a word. (laughs) We saw in chapter 1 that the churches in Asia Minor, this was a letter that went through all seven churches, distributed to be read aloud. And it says that there's a special blessing. Blessed are those who hear and do the words in this prophecy. So we read each chapter each week because we're told to. That's heavy, isn't it? The whole second section, I'm just going to say this up front, 6 through 18, what is all of this about? It's important. We're going to drill into this in a moment, but we ask each week, what did this mean for them, the Christians in Asia Minor in the first century, and what does it mean for later readers like us in 2021? And so that whole second section, you know what the essence of that message is? It was John hearing and seeing and being told that Rome, the empire in which he was living, that exiled him out to the island of Patmos, was an antichrist system. That Babylon was being expressed through Rome in the first century. That's the whole point, right? So we can get lost in all the details and trying to figure out. Rome sat on seven hills. We'll see that in a minute. And so this was a rather cryptic way of John seeing that the very context in which he was living was in fact being ruled by an antichrist spirit. That's it. We clear on that? Lots of details in that. But then what does it say for us now? There are ways to identify when an antichrist system is emerging based on what we know about Rome in the first century. we clear on that? So you can get in here and look at it and parse it out and look at the various things, and that is the point. Lots of symbolism, but it really is as clear as that. Does that help a little bit? And we can maybe, if we have time, look into it a little bit, but I think it's important to step back and have some general observations. That is the point. There was an Antichrist system then, and there will be the Antichrist system of all others That brings all of the various themes and threads and terrible things together in the coming days. That's what John is saying. So let's look at this, the introduction to the the vision here. Again, the good news of this, that Jesus is Lord. One of the seven angels at verse 1 comes to John. And this is one of the seven angels that we encountered in the previous chapter that was responsible for those bold judgments being poured out. The angel says, come, John, I will show you the judgment of the great, or you could say notorious prostitute, seated on many waters. Interesting. We're going to see this in the passage. The same angel is going to show John the bride of Christ in chapters 19, 20, and 21. The bride, we've already seen, we've... Had a little sneak peek at times. The bride wears fine linen, is preparing herself for a wedding feast, is in love with Christ Jesus, the bridegroom. And so this is a parallel, a parody, a mimicry that the Antichrist is bringing. This is his bride, the prostitute. And we've seen it over and over again through the book, haven't we? That Satan is a counterfeiter. He has an unholy trinity. He has a fake resurrection with the beast, the Antichrist. He doesn't have a church. He has the synagogue of Satan, we saw in one of the letters. And now here we see yet again, he's imitating. And he has an unholy bride. Some have problems with this. Anyone squirming a little bit? As I said, prostitute and the text, the NRSV says whore. Some people say that this is misogynistic. It's anti-woman. It victimizes women. Well, thankfully, we have commentators that are writing about this. And one commentator says this, that these are not salacious or sexual elements dominating the text. It's actually the language of urban siege and warfare. So it's really not about a prostitute and her activities. All right? And there's lots of discussion around this, but I just want to acknowledge that this is difficult on the ears to even hear the word. But if scripture says it, we read it. And then we dig into it and we figure out what it meant for them in the first century and how we apply that in the 21st century, right? So I know it's difficult, causes a little bit of squirming, but friends, this does not victimize women. This is an Old Testament image that we find all through the prophetic scriptures. And women actually portrayed cities. So you would describe a city, you think about the Mount Zion and the New Jerusalem and all of these things, they were portrayed in female language. So it's the way that they did it in the ancient world. We see in Nahum 3, the city of Nineveh is described in these terms. Listen to this. Nahum 3 at verse 4. Because of the countless debaucheries of the prostitute, the city of Nineveh, gracefully alluring And the mistress of sorcery who enslaves nations through her debaucheries and peoples through her sorcery, the Lord says this, I am against you, city of Nineveh, says the Lord of hosts. So this is an image that's taken from the Old Testament. It's important for us to see that. It's not misogynistic. It's the way that things were described Back in the day, Isaiah 23, speaking, and I'm just giving some examples here so there's some context and some background. Isaiah 23, 16 through 17, the city of Tyre is described, that's T Y R E, as a forgotten prostitute who plays music and prostitutes herself with all the kingdoms of the world. So it's actually symbolic or metaphorical language that's being used here, just as a prostitute would allure into sexual relations so you have these cities who've turned their backs on God and they allure their people and the people of the nations into idolatry that's the point of the passage we clear on that Does that help a little bit and this is very interesting commentators see here that this prostitute who personifies Babylon that will make more sense in a minute really combines elements of all kinds of biblical and historical figures Jezebel, the false prophetess, Cleopatra, the woman who ruled Egypt 70 years before Christ, and even the Roman goddess named Roma. So all of these things come together in this description of Babylon as a harlot. The text says that she's seated on many waters in verse the latter part of verse one. What does that mean? Well, we'll see that Babylon, the historical city, was actually seated on the Euphrates and all of the different waterways around it. And she used, the city used those waterways in order to engage in commerce and also to send out her religious and spiritual practices to seduce the nations into idolatry. Some graphic language here. Verse 2, look at it. She intoxicates the people of the earth with her fornication, her pornea. She gives the promise of prosperity and security. This is the Antichrist system in John's day and the Antichrist system in subsequent times. But she asks for their compliance, their allegiance, and ultimately their worship. So it was that way in the first century of Rome, little by little, eventually you must worship the emperor. You must worship the empire. You must acknowledge that the power of the state is where your ultimate allegiance goes. So we've seen that the book of Revelation is a rebuke of that and a call for the church to stand up and say, no, Caesar is not Lord. Nero is not Lord, Domitian is not Lord, Jesus is Lord and we're willing to die for that. So again here, the antichrist system does everything it can to allure people so that we give ourselves, we're mesmerized, we're hypnotized. We believe and buy into the propaganda and the next thing we know, we're lukewarm. The text is calling the church to give worship and powerful witness to the Lord Jesus. I want to take a moment here and I want to illustrate that in our day, 2021, Babylon is rising among us. You know that, right? But this week and next week, I'm going to point out a few cultural examples because there's plenty. So I thought through some of the things that I've seen, especially over the last few years, that point that Babylon, Neo Babylon, a new Babylon, an Antichrist spirit is rising. And it's time for the church to wake up, take the red pill of Scripture over and over again, and say, Jesus is Lord. I am not buying into the system. I'm not buying into the propaganda. I'm not worshiping the state, whether it's Democrat, Republican, or Independent. I'm a Christian. And I'm willing to die for the truth of God's word. So I want to give a couple examples. And I want to say this. As I said at the beginning, it's important to look at the work of the enemy so that we can grow in discernment. If you're running into a battle, you've got to know a little bit about your enemy. If you just run in and Along the way, you're saying, now, who are we fighting? How does he work? What, what is this foolishness? So we want to discern the work of the enemy, what he's doing now, and be able to look into it. But then we remind ourselves behind it all, Jesus is Lord. There was an article, July 25, 2017, in Vanity Fair. An artist named Lana Del Rey, a 36-year-old from New York who was raised Catholic, And this article explains this about Lana. Lana Del Rey, an earthbound sea witch, born from primordial goo and singer, asked her fans to cast a spell on Donald Trump in February. At the time of the inauguration, the performer tweeted a mysterious message that only offered four dates and these cryptic instructions quote, ingredients for the spell can be found online, end quote. Swiftly, internet sleuths did what they do and traced the tweet to an international witch effort to bind Trump. The dates corresponded to monthly waning crescent moons, and the instructions were indeed found online. So friends, we have incredibly popular singer who is completely given over to witchcraft. Wake up. Some of you already know that story. It happened a few years ago. This is one example of many. Do we appreciate her as an artist? Do we pray for her soul? You better believe it. But I'm giving you an illustration. This is one. I heard another within the last month Teen Vogue, where they're instructing in an article for young girls, teenagers, to use their menstrual blood in a witchcraft ceremony. Friends, it's everywhere. Babylon is rising. Are we awake? Are you awake? Is your head in the sand or are you awake? Parents, are you awake? This is what's going on. Pull your head out of the sand. Be aware. Satan wants your kids. Jezebel wants your kids. The Antichrist system wants your kids. And I, as your pastor, it's incumbent on me to say that. Now, we're not gripped with fear. We'll come back to that in a moment. But this is part of knowing the enemy. He's not messing around. He wasn't messing around in the first century, he wasn't messing around in Hitler's regime. Stalin, Lenin, Mao, and he's not messing around at this moment culturally. Amen? A second example, March 29th of this year, little Nas X, 22-year-old from Georgia, raised in a Christian home, award-winning singer, won awards for the Old Town Road. You know it, many of you. I want to read from this CBS News article that says this, the devil doesn't only wear Prada. Rapper Little Nas X sparked intense debate online over Palm Sunday weekend with the release of a controversial pair of Satan shoes, which feature a bronze pentagram charm, an upside down cross, and actual human blood in the shoe the sneakers will launch as a limited edition collection of 666 pairs of the Air Max 97s. According to Mischief, a New York-based art collective collaborating with the artist, each shoe contains about two fluid ounces of red ink and one drop of human blood in the sole of the shoe. And the blood came from the Mischief collective team. Little Nas, part of this, was a publicity stunt. How many of you have seen his video of the newest song? All right. Along with the shoe release, I'm hoping you'll go watch it, and it will jolt you to your bone marrow, and you might want to throw up The new single that he released along with his publicity stunt is called Montero, Call Me By Your Name. And it tells his personal story, the 22-year-old African-American from Georgia, coming from a Christian home, a gospel-singing father, and to his coming out as gay. And the whole video is a parody, a mimicry of the creation of Adam in the video. He is seduced by Satan, the serpent in the garden. And then later on as the video unfolds, after he's been seduced by Satan, hell opens up and the artist pole dances his way into the depths of hell where Satan is seated on his throne. He proceeds to give Satan a lap dance and more Then he murders Satan, the artist does, replaces him, and transforms into his image. Friends, it's a new day. It's a video. I chose to watch it, even though I saw some snippets so that I would have an informed opinion. It is absolutely sobering and disturbing. Now, people can say, well, I came up in the 60s and the 70s. It was a rough end. I hear you. But not like this. You show me in the 60s and 70s when they were tripping on acid and the Beatles and the Doors and you name it were doing their thing. It was bad. Right? You show me one time that you have an agenda coming through the music and the culture like this. Nothing close to it. Absolutely weaponized. The music, the arts are being hijacked and weaponized and aimed at our kids. It's time to wake up. There's a revival happening right now, and it's called a satanic revival. A revival of the occult. Sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's overt in your face. But the Lord's gonna have a revival. He counterfeits, the enemy counterfeits. So if there is a counterfeit satanic revival, Babylon is rising, then we're going to see a revival and outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord's going to raise up the youth in the face of this. In the darkest, bleakest moment, God will have his way. So we don't have a defeatist attitude. We see that witchcraft and Satanism and sexual confusion and making light of interacting with Satan and all of this is there. It's all there. Someone has said that politics is downstream from culture, and I believe that. Culture is a cesspool. If politics is downstream from it, we have two cesspools. But the Lord will have his way. Jesus is Lord over this moment. And the Lord wants us to raise up Daniels and Danielas, young women, young men in Babylon, who are deep in their friendship with God who have courage to face suffering and to walk in prophetic power, just like Daniel did in Babylon. So friends, we have hope, even while this stuff is happening here. I want to just illustrate that as we've come to the text that talks about this. I want to give some cultural examples of what's happening. How are we? Some of you may want to go home and check out these things. I already told you where they are. You can Google it, pull it up. You may want to watch it, but be forewarned. But it's time. We can't retreat. We can't hide. It's going on. The ship has sailed. And we press into the Lord with eyes wide open, discernment firing, and saying, Lord, now move. Move in great power. We prepare with prayer and fasting, immersing ourselves in scripture, going deep into community, Because we realize we're in battle together. Amen? I'm tempted to give you a moment. Give me a moment here after reading that. I'm about ready to come out of my shirt. But let's look at the second section. And again, we're not going to look at the whole chapter. We're just going to look at verses 3 through 6 and then call it a day. We've seen an introduction to the vision in verses one through two. And now, secondly, verses three through six is the vision, the actual vision of the prostitute and the beast. A few comments here to help us make sense of it. The angel carries John away, verse three, in the spirit into a wilderness. We've seen in scripture and other places the Holy Spirit works in the desert, Luke 4. Jesus is actually led by the Spirit into the desert, the wilderness. This is letting us know here at verse 3 that the Holy Spirit plays a key role in the entire book of Revelation. And therefore, in the entire life of the church, it is the Spirit of God who carries us into the presence of God, who fills us. We've seen it in chapter 1. Chapter 4, and now here in 17, it will happen again in 21. John is in the Spirit. He's a friend of the Holy Spirit. He fellowships with the Holy Spirit. He receives a revelation from the Holy Spirit. What about the wilderness? It's a place of protection. We saw that in chapter 12, verse 6. It's a place where John, even in the Spirit, was able to get a clear view of what's happening here. What's he see at verse 3, the second part? He sees a woman in his vision. Sitting on a scarlet beast. I've got an image here if you want to put that up. Revelation is so picturesque that there are moments where we've just got to see an artist's rendition. So here we have the woman, Babylon the prostitute, on the beast with these Seven heads and ten horns. And again, the point is to get the general picture here, not get lost in all the details. We were introduced in chapter 12 to this beast, and now we see it's red. We saw in chapter 12 that the dragon, Satan, is pictured as red. So it's no coincidence the beast that she's riding is red. And she wears scarlet red as well. There's blasphemous names, false claims of this anti Christ empire, claiming sovereignty that only God has and Christ. Again, lots of things we could peel the layers back. The seven heads and ten horns we saw back in chapter 13 when the beast was introduced. The point of it, seven, is complete. So we see that this system has a fullness of power, the evil kingdoms that persecute Christians. And the red also signifies the shed blood of the saints. Verse 4 says that, This person, this prostitute, is dressed in luxurious clothing, expensive jewelry, holding a golden cup, having a mysterious name on her forehead. Again, we saw that this attire that she's wearing contrasts sharply with the bride, wearing her beautiful, bright, clean linen as she is clothed with the righteousness of Christ. This prostitute here is holding a golden cup, Again, another image taken from the Old Testament prophets. Jeremiah 51.7 says this about Babylon. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hands, making all the earth drunk. The nations drank of her wine, and so the nations went crazy. So Rome, the new Babylon, in John's day, is holding out the cup of wine again to seduce people with economic and carnal pleasure and to draw them into the worship of idols and away from God. This metaphor is symbolizing the promise of earthly welfare to its willing subjects. I know this is heavy. Is some of the text opening up, though, as we walk through it? To you, that's the point. The church read it. They would have discussed it. They would have used it in prayer and worship. And that's what we're trying to to do, to follow that, that pattern here. On her forehead was written a name, a mystery. What's the text say? Verse 5. We've seen that the marking of foreheads happens throughout the book, doesn't it? It occurs actually eight times. Three times speak of the mark of the beast and five speak of the, the name, the seal of God on foreheads. So it really is symbolizing who controls your thoughts? Who controls your mind? This one is out to seduce your mind with the prostitution of idolatry. This is a mystery that must be revealed by God. You can't just figure it out. John is given discernment to see this. And look at verse 6. What is she drunk with, church? The blood of Of the saints and witnesses of Jesus. The prostitute Rome slaughtered righteous Christ followers in the first century. And in the first century, those infamous persecutions of Christians foreshadow future times of martyrdom at the end. We're almost done, all right? But we're gonna finish with a couple of things here. There's a Roman historian named Tacitus, and he wrote about the first century. He wrote about what was happening in this moment, describing the idea of being drunk with the blood of saints. Listen to what he wrote. He writes about how Nero, the emperor, the leader of Rome, blamed Christians for the burning of Rome in the first century, subjecting them to the most exquisite tortures. This is him. They were covered with the skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs. The Christians were nailed to crosses. The Christians were burned alive to serve as human torches to light the night. Friends, it was brutal in the first century. Satan, the Antichrist system that was manifest in Rome, that will manifest again throughout history, is bloodthirsty and hates the people of God. And we must know this. I had lunch. You know what, before we do that, let's, let's look at this and I'm gonna end with a story. If you'll put the one with a triangle up here, because I, I wanna do everything I can to make some clarifications here, because this is a maze of questions and mysteries, right? But if you'll look up here at the slide, start with the bottom. Again, this is gleaning from the book trying to make some sense of, of what it's teaching, the beast that we're seeing here is a recurring symbol of an antichrist system. And we've seen that, haven't we? First John 2 says that the beast, the antichrist, will recur throughout history. Well, she happens to be writing on an antichrist system. Look at the second one, Babylon here. This is an archetype, a symbol an expression of beastly activity. So really what we're seeing here is like three layers that are described. Are you with me on that? So they're all interacting. Babylon was the antichrist system of all antichrist systems that they were able to glean from and look at in history. And then Rome is the first century expression of that. So you have the beast, You have Babylon and you have Rome as a new Babylon. That's what that image was describing. She's writing the beast. And so the religious, the political, the economic all come together in order to seduce and intoxicate the nations and be drawn into the Antichrist system and to give yourself willingly, to give your body willingly, to say, I trust you. I trust the empire. I trust the state. I'm not gonna think, I'm not gonna discern, I'm just gonna give myself to you. Friends, this is a word for now. We trust Jesus. We trust the word of God. We have our eyes wide open what's happening. I had lunch with a friend, I'll end with this. We were talking about Revelation 17 friend of mine, an Eastern Orthodox friend who worships at St. Elijah, the former atheist who became a Christian, his story, I've shared it before, every time we meet, it's very enriching, but we were discussing Revelation 17 and the rising tide of opposition to Christians in America and the West. The forced church closings in the United States, in Canada and the UK, while Walmart liquor stores Weed dispensaries and strip clubs were allowed to stay open. The churches were closed. His church, this friend of mine, Corey, is made up of people from Europe, from the Middle East, from Africa, and other places where they have suffered for Christ for generations under the boot of socialism and communism and other evil regimes. Corey leaned across the table at Gopuram and the Indian restaurant, and he said, Brock, what may be coming to the West has been experienced by much of the world for centuries. I said, okay, brother. And he said, we may, in fact, undergo persecution for Christ as Christians from other countries already have. I didn't want to hear that, but he was right on the money. That is the message of chapter 17. It's the message of the book of Revelation. Christians now is the time to prepare. Some of you are saying, "Well, I wanted to come to church and do meet and greet, sing some good songs." I'm sorry. This is this church is mobilizing an army. Gideon's army for the coming days. And we are not we're not out to entertain. We're not out to grow a church by clever church growth methods. We're out to follow Jesus, to listen to his word. And if people don't want to be part of that, then God bless them. They can find a church where they belong and fit, and we send them and bless them with hearts full of love. But friends, this is what we're doing here we're mobilizing an army. We, our kids, our grandkids, our friends, our neighbors, whoever we're in community with, and we're preparing like Christians have in the scriptures and throughout history. Now, if we get some reprieve and things don't go down as they seem like they might be developing, praise God. We're more on fire. We're more faithful to the word of God. We've got our head out of the sand and we're alert. That's wonderful. But my friend told me in that conversation, this is normal Christianity, that you face opposition. This whole Western idea that the church has it good and a consumerist mentality. I don't like the worship of that church, so I'm not going to go. The preacher's boring. The preacher's heavy. I'm not going to go there. The kids' ministry isn't adequate. I'm not going to go there. I'm going to go to another church. Friends, that's not what we're doing here. We are mobilizing an army, and if you want to be a part of it, come join us. Let's go deep together. Let's love and serve and throw our lives, body, soul, and spirit into this thing. And so I want to say today, if you're with us, join us. Man, we love it. If, you, if this does not resonate with you and you're ready to run out the room, we send you with great blessing. We love you. Grace to you. Is it lunchtime? <laughs> My wife is amazing. She, I, I walk around and just preach the paint off the walls. I'm walking around the house talking, and, and she just brings such wise counsel, and she'll say, I don't think you should say that. <laughs> at certain times, but then at other times, she's like, let it rip. Speak it. And she's been telling me to speak it. And so, friends, I love you. I care for you. I want the best for you, for your friends, for your family. But it's time for us to be more than sober and to let the Spirit of God go to work in us and to realize if, in fact, there's two revivals going on right now, that it's time to prepare, not in the foxhole, but now. Read the Word of God daily. Pray. Fellowship. Acts 2.42 says, The early church was given to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And we do the same thing. Let's stand up. So, Lord, we thank you for your word, even when it makes us uncomfortable. And I say that, Lord. We love you. We receive your love, your good Father, you are good and you're full of love and you pour out your spirit into our hearts. You clothe us in your armor. You clothe us with Christ. You arm us with the sword of the word of God and we receive it all today. And we love you. Thank you that no matter how intense it gets that we are loved by you and we are in love with you and we are the bride of Christ and you win in the end. And so we leave today with joy and confidence and courage in the power of the Holy Spirit.